If you could turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 8. Hosea chapter 8. I'll give you a minute to get there. But while you're going there, uh, chapter 8 is not the first part of the book. And we have been spending a fair bit of time going through the book. So I need to tell you kind of a framework that's working throughout Hosea. And indeed, actually all of the prophets, if you go through the Old Testament... We're going to see a bit of a tension in if you read all of Hosea, and honestly, chapter 8 is one half of that tension. The tension is this, God is a just God. God understands what evil is, and he does not countenance it. He punishes evil. But at the, in the controlling image in Hosea at the beginning was the image of a, a husband and a wife. And the wife is clearly adulterous. She turns away from her husband and from her family and goes to follow her own way and ends up in sin and death and destruction. And yet, and this is the other half of the, uh, of the, the, the image, God loves his people. God loves his people. And not with the kind of impotent love that says, you know, I I really love you, but I'm going to have to go ahead and do these horrible things to you. No, God loves with a powerful love. A redeeming love. A forgiving love. And so in the controlling image, we saw the prophet Hosea go and find his wife, Gomer, in her lostness and in her depravity, in the midst of a time when she was not searching for Hosea, Hosea searched for her. And that is the image that we see of God. And yet, throughout the entirety of the book of Hosea, we see again and again that the people of Israel, the people whom God loves, the people whom God desires to be close to him, to be redeemed to him, they have a big problem. And I I, I, I have a kind of a catch in my throat as I say this, because I don't like saying this, because, you know, We would like to say, you know, well, they've made mistakes or they're broken. The text of Hosea is they're evil. They are an evil people who have turned from God. They don't just make mistakes. They are not just broken. They break each other. They are unjust. They hurt one another. And this is the people of God whom God loves and redeems. And yet God is just. God is good. God does not countenance evil, but rejoices in the truth and in goodness. And so there's a tension at work. I'm going to say it's a bit of a prophetic tension because you'll see this through all of the Old Testament prophets pointing the tension between the love of God and the judgment of God And we will find that it meets somewhere. We'll get to that. Hosea chapter 8. Again, this is not going to be the most uplifting passage, so bear with me. 
Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Yet Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they've gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute, because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning. They have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built places, palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour her strongholds. Again, not the most uplifting passage. This is not stuff that usually gets put on your coffee cup. Uh, I'm unsure, you know, if somebody wants to do a cross-stitch of this for me, go right ahead. I think you're a little strange, but go right ahead. It's not a positive passage. And yet we need to look at passages like this in the Scriptures, first of all, because they're in the Scriptures, but also because it helps us to understand a little bit more clearly the goodness, the mercy, the fullness of grace in God. And this passage, lest we be questioning whether or not this is for us, I think it is very clearly for us. This week I was told on fairly good authority that evangelicals are all hypocrites. And as an evangelical, my first reaction to that was a little bit of anger, I'll admit. But honestly, are they wrong? I mean, I I do self-identify as an evangelical, just to be clear. I'm not going to say I don't believe that that word is a good word or anything. Yet are they wrong? And I don't actually have to go to politics and things like that to talk about that. I talked to a friend of mine. I mean, we both commiserated about the fact we were, you know, both bullied in high school. <laughs> now, I had an excuse. I went to a, uh, 
I went to a secular school. Well, integrated, they called it at the time. And it wasn't a lot of fun. But my friend, he went to a Christian school. His friends all claimed the name of Christ while they mercilessly bullied him. There's something wrong there. How often do we as believers say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all nations and for all peoples, that all people can come to the saving saving faith in Jesus Christ? And yet we don't say that to our neighbors, to our friends. We don't tell them that they can turn to Jesus and be saved. Now, it's possible that we don't actually truly believe it. But it's also possible that our love is pretty cold. We may actually be hypocrites. We might want to own that. And it's possible. It is completely possible that what I'm talking about only happens among people who aren't really believers. They know Jesus Christ, or they say they know Jesus Christ, but they're just saying it with their lips. They don't go to a good church. They don't listen to good sermons, and so they don't, you know, hear the truth of the gospel, and so we can just say, you know, but we, we know the truth. We know God. We, God, your people know you, we can pray. That's why chapter 8, verse 2 was pretty stressful for me when I read it. To me, they cry, we, my God, we, Israel, know you. You see, what you're seeing here is that people can have an idea of God, have some knowledge of God, But whatever God they know, it's not the real one. And I think we need to be careful about that. It is easy for us to replace the true God with just a God to the shade of the right or the left of the true God so that we can be a little bit more comfortable with him. And unfortunately... God is pretty clear about what that means. That means you don't know, you're not worshiping him anymore. You're worshiping a God of your own imagination. That's why the title of the sermon is Worshiping Gods of Our Own Imagination. I worry sometimes that like the people of Israel, we, the people who claim Jesus Christ here in the 21st century, sometimes will claim to know God But what we're talking about isn't really the God we meet in Scripture, the God we meet through Jesus Christ, but we are actually worshiping a God we just kind of like. That's what's so chilling here. You see, it's one of the basis of extremism. If you've been looking on the internet lately or, well, ever into Facebook or Twitter, you can notice that there's kind of a polarization going on. 
You see people who you know, decide that one side or the other side is completely evil. Everybody who agrees with me is on the side of the angels. Everybody who disagrees with me is obviously evil and desires to you know, kill babies or you know, desires to uh, subjugate women or whatever. You can see this pretty commonly, can't you? It's one of the bases of extremism. There's a really funny sketch on YouTube, if you want to look it up, by John Cleese talking about extremism and how extremism happens. Extremism happens, according to what he says, he says it much more funnily than I do, when you desire to feel so good about yourself that you define yourself as goodness and everybody else as evil. So I don't need to worry about the things that are going wrong in me. I don't need to worry about the possibility that there's something wrong in me. I'll just look and see other people and blame them for the evils of the world. And it really doesn't matter who your enemies are. Any group of people can be named that. And that's what's happening here in Hosea chapter 8. This is not a new thing. People do have done this for all of history. We've always created gods that will reaffirm our prejudices. And it's a very big danger because it's tempting for us as humans to take all of the prejudices and biases, all of the dislikes, and just mash them together and name that God. So that we can, again, believe that we're fine and other people, they're the ones that have the problems. There are, so for this week, I've got three things that I see in Hosea chapter 8 that will teach us about what it is to see these false gods. And then there's going to be a question with two applications. Three points, one question, two applications. And first of all, we also get a bit of a hint about how this happens. Look down at verse 5. It says, I've spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. Now, that's actually a reference to something in history. The calf of Samaria actually comes from 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 and following. Just to set the stage here, it's a, it's a time when Solomon has just died. The, the king is now Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is not the smartest person ever. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed. He makes a very large mistake that causes about 80% of his kingdom to secede from him and follow a guy named Jeroboam to create the kingdom of Israel based in the city of Samaria. In verse 25, you can see what happens here, though. Jeroboam has a bit of a problem. You see, Solomon built this really great temple in Jerusalem which is supposed to be the place where people go to worship the true God. Now, he's worried that if all of his people keep going down to Jerusalem year after year to worship God, eventually they'll figure out, you know, maybe this David guy isn't such a bad, a bad cat. Maybe Rehoboam will grow up a bit and understand that he shouldn't have done, said what he said. And maybe the kingdom will return to the house of David. So he doesn't want that to happen. So instead of doing that, he takes all of the cult practices, all of the ideas of who God is, 
And instead of talking about the place in Jerusalem that they should go, the temple, he makes two golden calves and says that all of, all of this stuff that you believe about God, you can worship God truly by worshiping these golden calves that will be in northern Israel. Now, obviously, if you read 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 and following, it tells you that it's a false god. And it's obviously a false god from our perspective. But before we get mad at the 10 tribes of Israel and Jeroboam and imagine that we're so much better, remember what happened here. They still believe all of the laws. They follow the Torah. They've just taken all of that and put it onto a false god. They've recontextualized who they believe God to be. Not because they figure that they need to know a little bit more truly who God is, but because Jeroboam has a political desire. And so he changes the religion just ever so slightly. And they follow him. That's what he's talking about there. For political expediency to deal with a problem that could not arise for for him from the worship of the true God, he takes things that the people actually already believe and changes them so that he will be worship, he will be safe. And the people of Israel follow that. And by the time Hosea comes on the scene, it's been about 200 years of following this false God. Over time, you begin to find that other things change little bit by little bit. You've decided that, well, you know, we'll follow these calves. Well, it's okay then. It's not, God didn't really mean it when we should love the other tribes of Israel, especially those two guys down south. We should be able to go to war with them. So we'll change our religion just a little bit more. God would obviously be okay with that. God doesn't have a problem with the things that we're doing because we feel he shouldn't. And the whole time, they're convincing themselves that they know God and building an idol. Friends, I don't think that that's necessarily the case that we're all in. But I think we need to be careful to make sure that that isn't where we are. It's very easy to do this. It's very easy to imagine that because what you're following is, feels good for the moment, that it seems to fit what you would think God is, that it is God. And then it reaffirms you in, in following it. So beginning with the first point, false gods affirm us. The true God loves us. This is one of the first ways you can tell the difference between the true God and false gods. Again, going back to verses 2 and 3. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Now, again... Notice that they've named kings and princes that aren't in keeping with God. May naming kings and princes is not itself a bad thing. 
I don't think God is sitting in heaven getting mad at us for having elected Dwight Ball this week. I mean, regardless of your opinions on who Dwight Ball is, I don't think that that's what he's angry about here. What he's angry about is that they set up these princes without any reference to God. And whatever reference they made to God, they simply used God as an affirmation of it. You know how this works as believers. I mean, I can remember this when I first became a Christian. I went to youth group, and youth group was interesting. You know, I I got to meet a lot of people who agreed with me on, on a lot of biblical issues. And for some reason, the most attractive people in youth group, God was calling them to marry absolutely everybody in the youth group. Do you know how I know that? Because absolutely every person in the youth group, male or female, the females generally liked the cutest guy, the guys tended to like the cutest girl, and they all in their prayer times and in their, in their times of, uh, uh, with God and his word, for some reason, God told all of them that they had to marry the prettiest girl or the prettiest guy in the youth group. And obviously the prettiest girl in the youth group uh, sinned because she's not married to me. But anyway, but that's the way it was working here for for the people of Israel. They had come up with what they wanted to do. And instead of actually just, you know, praying to God and letting God correct them, you know, maybe that's not what God's calling. Maybe it's just your emotions. Maybe you just ate too much pizza last night. You probably shouldn't be putting this down to God. Instead of looking into the word of God and getting good godly counsel and checking with people, They just simply said, well, this is is what we want to do. Therefore, it's what God wants us to do. They just put a level of authority on over the top of their own decisions. And this is insidious. I mean, we laugh at the whole one about getting married. There are people who actually did get married for that reason. I've met them. It causes some problems in their marriages over time, even if God really did intend that. Because if you set yourself up to simply say that whatever your opinion is, God obviously agrees with you, you've put yourself in a situation, the very dangerous situation, where only God can only affirm you. The God that you, and I would say this because it has to be a false God, because the God that I read about in scripture doesn't affirm everything about humans. I mean, heck, I'm reading through Hosea. He affirms maybe one one hundredth of what the people of Israel are doing in Hosea. God doesn't affirm everything. And so the God that affirms everything in you is probably a false God. And this surface thing is, Okay, until, you know, what happens later on when, you know, you're, you're looking for a job. And God, call, God, God called me to take this other job that I really liked. I mean, one of the things about being a pastor is you get a front row seat to all of the sin in the world. Do you know, I've actually heard men say, God called me to divorce my wife and marry someone 20 years younger. Now, considering the Bible says God hates divorce, I'm thinking you might be making that up. 
And yet, they were fully convinced of it. They fully believed that the God who loves them would simply affirm whatever they desired. Because, let's face it, this is a problem we have in our modern world. We actually believe that love means affirmation. We really do believe that as a culture, uh, some of us as individual people, that the only thing that a loving God can do is affirm us. Now, of course, that's crazy, as we see in Scripture, but that doesn't even match our experience. I mean, we've all been children once, right? No clones here, right? All been children once. Pastor Steve talked about it under mothers, at mothers, on Mother's Day. When your kid come, yells at you and says, you don't love me? You know, the thing that causes a mother's heart to stop suddenly? The funny part about that is when I go back through my own history and I realize the times when I yelled that at my parents, those were the times when they were actually loving me the most. I really love my parents for having affirmed me. They affirmed my intelligence. They affirmed my abilities academically for throughout my whole life. But I'm also really thankful for the times they told me I was wrong. Like, you know, when I went to university, failed out my first year, five courses of five courses, I was really good at failing. And I was busy blaming the professors for being mean to me until one of my parents took me aside and said, you know, Steve, it's probably more to do with the fact you were lazy. Which didn't feel good, which felt like an accusation, but was fully correct. I did need to repent. I did need to change something in my life. But if I believed that the only way my parents could love me was if they affirmed me, I wouldn't have listened to them then. And I would still be a bitter man looking about, looking about at how the academic world had slighted me. In Christian circles, it comes out in a different way. Do you know there's actually a movement among Christians, to say, or people who claim themselves to be Christian, to say that God doesn't ever have wrath against sinners? I don't know what Bible they're reading. I mean, I, I, I just read through Hosea chapter 8. It's pretty clear he does. But the reason is because they believe that God is a God of love. I mean, it says it twice in 1 John. And because it says it twice in 1 John, then obviously... God is love, and love means affirmation. Well, with all due respect, affirmation may be a part of love, but not all affirmation is love. If somebody is just affirming you, that's not love. That's just affirmation. Usually it's just fear that they don't want to actually deal with you on a real level. Affirmation is not love. So false, and so when we look at the true God, the true God corrects us. He calls us to repentance. The true God doesn't just affirm, the true God loves. So friends, first, the first diagnostic tool. If you find that your God, your image of God, just tells you what you want to hear, with all due respect, you need to meet the real God. 
Because the real God will actually correct you when you're wrong. Second point. False gods can make evil seem good while God punishes evil. That phrase, by the way, can get me in a lot of trouble in a lot of places. Because the simple fact is, we don't like to believe that. The first part we're fine to believe because, you know, then we can actually attack our enemies with it and say that they believe in false gods and they're just making evil seem good. We don't like the second part. The true God actually punishes evil. But let's start with the first part there. False gods can make evil seem good. Look at verse 5. Again, I've spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. Look at the second part there. How long will they be incapable of innocence. So the, sec- the situation here for the people of Israel is that they have followed their false gods so long that they have become incapable of innocence. Their desires have so been ingrained into them and has become so accepted as the truth that they are now incapable of innocence. Look a little further down. Verse 11, because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. The people of Israel had been following their false god for so long and become so ingrained with the idea that their god necessarily has to affirm all of their beliefs, all of their prejudices, all of their desires that they honestly believe that the sins they're doing are willed by God. This is delusional. I mean, on a really, really massive scale, this is delusional. But friends, this is what happens when you eliminate the God of the Bible, the true God. It becomes easy for us to turn the word of God into a way to beat each other up and tell each other why you're wrong instead of a way for us to read it, to look at it, and to see the glory of a God who loves us and desires us to be better. It's so easy for us to turn the Bible into a way to make other people uncomfortable to hit the sins that I'm not really all that worried about myself. It gets worse. I mean, some people will even go so far as to say that you don't need to read the Bible in the places where it talks about the sins that I have. Oh, no, no, no. The Bible doesn't really say that I need to love my enemies. It does, by the way. Because my enemies are really horrible people, so I don't need to love them. Actually, no, the Bible says you must love them. I don't need to worry about uh, my lying, my cheating, my stealing, my lust, whatever sin it is that you tend to be most prevalent to. Oh, no, I don't have to worry about that. What I really need to worry about is this other sin that that guy over there does. That's what a false god does. It makes our evil seem acceptable. Sometimes even makes our evil seem good. 
I mean, I've, I'm a pretty good guy at logic. I can take texts apart pretty, pretty well. Do you know there are people who actually take the Bible and find ways to manipulate and, and cause other people to stumble? God warns us about them. They're called false teachers. I mean, it is pretty interesting that there is a full group of people in the world who will actually preach to you that you should seek after money, which the Bible actually says will ruin your soul if you love it too much. Seriously, love money, because money ruins your soul. Yet, people go there. False gods are pretty easy to get to. And if you follow them too long, if you follow the affirmations too long, the, God will, the false god you create will make your evil seem good to you. Because let's face it, our hearts are desperately wicked. If we follow God too much, if we follow the false gods too much, if we follow affirmation too much, what ends up getting affirmed is our own evil. This is why we need the true God. We need the true God who corrects us. And you see, that's the other thing. The true God punishes evil. I mean, we don't like to say that because honestly, hear, the, hear what I'm saying here. We're an, uh, we're an upper middle class church. Most of us have a lot of money and don't have to worry too much about being subjugated or persecuted. I mean, the closest I get to persecution is somebody makes me feel bad on Facebook, which is nothing. <laughs> Let's be blunt. We don't like to say that, though, because then it would mean that the evils that we have in our own lives, those evils that we hide from other people and sometimes, God forbid, even from ourselves, they're not okay. God doesn't just paper them over for eternity. God doesn't pretend that our sin is not sin. But we'll get to that in a moment because we did actually sing a lot of songs about God forgiving us. I'll explain. But God really does punish evil. And the thing is, people, for, for a lot of people in the world, that's actually really good news. It should be really good news for us. I mean, it's the other side of uh, one of the important things that we learned. But look at verse 7 and 13. They sow to the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. That's Hosea 8, 7. You see, God says that he will punish evil. As is commensurate to the evil, if you sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. If you sow evil to the world, you will receive the evil back on you. God punishes evil. The evil you see in the world, there will be a day when that will be no more. There will never be at the end of history a time when we will say, oh God, you missed that one. That evil you left aside, that will never happen. Because the God is just and he does justly. I'll use the words of Martin Luther King Jr. out of his essay, Out of the Long Night. Evil may so shape events 
that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross. But the same Christ arose and split history into A.D. and B.C. so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it tends towards justice. And that's true. When that day comes that every, uh, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, there will be no more evil. It will be over. Amen. 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 There's going to come a day when this is over, and that's because of point three. The false God is powerless. Our false gods are powerless. They have no power at all. Well, save the power that they get by you actually obeying their, their ideas. But they don't have power to fix history. They don't work the arc of the moral universe. Why? Verse 6 puts it succinctly. It's from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. When it comes to these false gods that we come up with, they're not true. The fact that they're a delusion means that they are, in the grand scheme of things, powerless. Their only power is in deceiving you to do as your delusion guides, but they are powerless to bring about justice. They do not bend the arc of history to the just. They can't punish evil. If you're evil, that might sound good for a moment. The false gods can't punish evil. But they're also impotent to give you meaning. A false god is valueless in your quest for value. A false god cannot ground your worth. And if you put your identity in a false god, your identity will be hollow and meaningless. The false gods have no power. But... And this, I don't know how much you can actually say that this is good news, but it is really phenomenally good news. Remember the tension I told you at the beginning? The prophetic tension that points to the future? That prophetic tension between the evils that we have in the world and the goodness of God who still loves us, yet the fact that we are evil? How are you going to reconcile the need to punish evil with the goodness of God? Friends, we have the answer. In the 21st century, we know what the answer is because we can look back at what God actually did. It's put much more simply by Paul than by me. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For, his, for our sake, he made him to be sin who know no, knew no sin. That we, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, God is powerful. The true God is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him and serve him and are called according to his purposes. His love is not an empty promise. It's a fact of history. 
punctuated with the empty cross of Christ, his justice is unfailing. His power is overwhelming. His righteousness is clear. And his love, hear me people, does not fail. Let me repeat that. His love does not fail. This is the God we worship. This is the God who comes to us in Christ. This is the God who faces our own failures and follies and sin, not with a trite, that's okay, I'll forget it, but with a clear, I will handle it. In fact, I have handled it. You see, on the cross of Christ, God wasn't sweeping the sins of the universe under the cosmic rug. Jesus Christ on the cross was drinking the full cup of the wrath of God set for you and for me. And friends, at the end, he said, it is finished. You see, He doesn't merely forgive your sins in the sense of forgetting about them and saying, oh, no, that's okay. Because he doesn't say that evil is okay. He says that though you have sinned, my mercy is greater than your sin. My power is more powerful than your evil. Your evil cannot win. The Lord defeats it. Friends, he's taken the fullness of of God's wrath for us. He drank the cup of wrath and there is nothing left for you. If you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, at the end of time when you stand before the throne of God, though your sins may be as scarlet, because you stand in Christ, there is no wrath of God left for you. That's what the gospel means. And that means that today, your sin and your shame do not face a powerless God of your own imagination. Satan in your life does not merely face your willpower as you fight sin. No. As we are united to Christ by, the, by faith... The forces of evil in our lives face the powerful God of the universe, who is not merely just, but is also powerfully the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You see, in his name, all the promises of God are a yes and amen. In him, all injustice will cease even in our hearts, even in our lives. You see, this is the thing we face in Hosea 8. The fact is we are far worse than we could ever imagine. But God's salvation wrought through Jesus Christ, Jesus is a far greater savior than even our sin. I don't know how to say that more strongly. But that's the fact. 
So the question this morning is, which God are you believing in? Which God do we believe in this morning? Do we believe in the God of our own imaginations that will affirm us, but is ultimately powerless to save us? That will tell us that everything is okay when it's not? Or do we believe in the God of the Bible, the one who saves us powerfully on the cross of Christ? That's the question. And so the applications, and this is just my little opinion, stop believing in the delusional gods and put your trust in Jesus. The delusional gods can't save, but Jesus can. Put your faith in him. And finally, because this is an amazing thing, because he has done such great things for us, praise him for his goodness. Let's pray.